0: The events recorded for us in John chapter 18 take place within the context of a garden. But long before we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, there was another garden. In that garden, God had promised that he would finally and fully deal with humanity's sin and rebellion. In the Garden of Eden, after after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, He promised them that a rescuer would come and put an end to their rebellion. The person that God had promised was was none other than his own son, Jesus Christ. And all of human history from that point in the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane was building like a giant wave in the sea, ready to crash upon the shore of Gethsemane. The long-awaited Savior had arrived at His moment in history. All of eternity passed. Even before God created the very first molecule, He had planned and purposed to send His Son to die. Jesus will allude to this eternal purpose this morning in John chapter 18. That for this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world. Jesus had a singular mission given to Him by the Father that He would lay down His life as a willing sacrifice for sinners. Jesus would die as the innocent Lamb of God but would rise to endless life that He might give us eternal life. As we consider these final chapters of John, it's, it's easy, and, and, and perhaps if you've been around church a while, you've heard sermons on All of the minute details about the cross. Perhaps you've even seen that famous film. Old Mel Gibson put together a number of years ago. Don't recommend it, but maybe you have. You've gone in and you've waited and you've studied and you've learned about all the details. About a Roman crucifixion and the pain and the suffering that one would endure. And the asphyxiation that would result from it. As I've alluded to often. Fascinatingly enough, the disciples and the apostles never get into all those details. Perhaps it was because it was assumed they knew. And those who have been the early readers would have known about what a Roman crucifixion was. And But maybe perhaps it's because they were writing for more than just a historical reason. It's easy to read John chapter 18, 19, and 20 and and kind of have historian eyes and and read it like a historian would read the yesterday's news. That's not why John is writing. John's not writing to convince us that Jesus died. He's not writing to convince us that Jesus' death really hurt. It was really painful, it was really bloody. It was really excruciating. No, no, he doesn't need to write all of that. He doesn't need to go into all of those details. Because what John is doing here is is looking behind the curtain and helping us understand why Jesus is not dying, not how Jesus is dying. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples as he finished his final discourse in John chapter 16. Jesus said this to his disciples, I say these things to you that when the hour comes, that's a reference to his crucifixion, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you what I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. In other words, Jesus helped his disciples understand the theological Emphasis and importance and significance of the cross. And so as Christians, we want to understand not merely that Jesus died on a Roman cross. But understand why Jesus is hanging on a Roman cross. And why the son of God would willingly choose to do so. Therefore, John wants us as his readers To have all that we've studied from chapters 1 through 17 in mind as we read these final chapters. One could argue that all of the chapters leading up to this point have been reflections on what the cross really means. Particularly considering what Jesus has just concluded in chapters 16 and 17... That Jesus' death was for his disciples. Throughout these final chapters, as you read alone and in our gatherings together, you want to sort of pick up on John's interpretive breadcrumbs. He leaves them behind so as to lead the reader to the right conclusions about what these texts mean and their significance for our lives together. So with that in mind, let's go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. This is a quite lengthy chapter, 40 verses. To aid us in our attentive attention span, I'm going to read it by section as we move through it rather than reading the whole. So, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 now. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with his disciples there. So, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom? Do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost no one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? We'll stop there for now because really those first 11 verses summarize the chapter quite well. According to God's eternal purposes, Jesus was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to death so that you could go free. Jesus, the divine king, willingly satisfied God's wrath as a substitute for your sin, so that those who would believe in him could go free. The innocent found guilty, that the guilty might be declared innocent. This is the, the main idea. This is the main theme of these chapters. This is, frankly, the point of the gospel that, that those who are guilty go free by the freedom the innocent one who died the death they deserve. So really the purpose of our time in reflecting on these final verses in, in John chapter 18 is to inform our understanding of the death of Jesus in light of who he is and what his death accomplishes for us. Who is this Jesus? What did his death accomplish? Why? is the eternal Son of God dying on the cross for sinners. Why the cross? And so through this narrative, John presents to us really three aspects to Jesus' death. You might say, well, Jesus doesn't die in chapter 18. He he dies in chapter 19. Well, Well, all of this is preparatory for when he dies. In other words, Jesus is leading his disciples and teaching them even while he's being beaten. He wants the apostles to understand the significance. And John, as he's retelling the story, is helping us understand the significance of the death of Christ. And so in verses 1 through 11, we see that Jesus' death is propitiatory. In other words, Jesus' death is sacrificial. Jesus alludes here to drinking the cup. That the father has given him then in verses 20 verses 12 through 27 so if you ever Bible's open just looking there verses 12 through 27 in, in verses 12 through 27 we have Jesus before on, on sort of a Jewish trial he's before the Jewish leadership Ananias and then uh, Annas rather and, Kephi, and and Caiaphas these words up Um, We see Peter's denial. And all throughout this passage, John uh, leaves little crumbs that, that lead us to understand that Jesus is dying as a substitute. In other words, Jesus isn't dying because he deserves to die. But he's dying on behalf of others. Then finally, in verses 28 through 40, as Jesus is before Pilate, he keeps using these words, about being a king and that his kingdom is not of this world and so we learn that Jesus is dying as a king that his death is kingly and he's teaching us that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords you know if you look at the events of Jesus's life and you look here it almost seems as if he is a helpless victim in early 20th century america there was a liberal theologian by the name that taught that jesus was a victim of fate that, that it was really just a, it was a terrible accident that he was a good man and he lived a good life but he was just, it was just an awful accident it shouldn't have happened it was it was a tragedy to use a, a, a word from literature This passage presents us a very different picture. Presents us with a God who is in utter control, complete control of his own fate. He is the one who steps forward. He is the one who goes willingly into the night. He is the one who stands before Pilate knowing that his kingdom is not of this world. That he has greater authority than Pilate ever dreamed of having but yet willingly submits himself. Well, let's look at these three aspects. First, in verses 1 through 11, we learn that Jesus' death is sacrificial. They use the word propitiation. It's a good Bible word. Good Bible word to know. Propitiation. It means atoning sacrifice. A satisfying wrath. The main idea here in these verses is that Jesus is the only willing sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath. We're told that Jesus and his disciples have tra- traveled to the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't go to all the details that the Synoptic Gospel writers Matthew, Mark, and Luke go to in describing this scene. He leaves out that, that prayer that Jesus prays there in the garden. Leaves out some of the other details centered around his arrest and trial. He rather gets right to the point, doesn't he? Look there, what we're told in verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? You see see what John did there for you? He helped you understand the point of the passage. You see, Jesus willingly went to the garden. He knew what was going to happen in the garden. He he knew that Judas was going to betray him. I mean, if you knew that your house, that that, that robbers were going to come to your house at 12 o'clock today, would you go home and like roll up and and open the door and say, hey, how are you guys doing? I knew you'd come. I'm glad you're here. Let me help you uh, load up your car. No, you would call the police. You'd stay away. You, You wouldn't go willingly. Jesus knew that he would be arrested in the garden, yet he went willingly. Jesus knew that the Father would begin to pour out His wrath upon Him in the garden, but He went willingly. Isn't this totally contra to the garden we see in in Eden? Where you've got folks that are are so willing to live for themselves, so self-motivated, so selfish that they're willing to rebel against God, yet you have God coming in flesh so willing to obey God that He enters the garden knowing what awaits Him. Knowing all that would happen to him. Jesus was fully aware that the cross was before him. Yet he never flinched. He kept moving forward. As Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 10 and verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one forced Jesus to die. Jesus isn't the the victim here. This isn't some terrible twist of fate in the life of Jesus. No, this is purposeful. Jesus willingly went. This was a divine God. And notice here, in verse 4 again, continuing to verse 5, then Jesus said, then they answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus said, I am He. Again, he's using that I am language and and in response to that, they recoil, they they fall to the ground. He's declaring himself to be the eternal God and they respond by bowing before him. Jesus here is declaring to be the divine authoritative one who has has the authority to lay down and to take up his own life. Jesus' sacrifice was a willing sacrifice. No one twisted his arm. No one made him do it. He did it willingly and for your sin. More than that, we see that Jesus is is dying sacrificially as he guards his sheep. Notice there in verses 7 through 9 what we are told. Uh, We are told that he asked them again, who do you seek? They say to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And notice how he responds there in verse 8. I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus doesn't turn around and try to run away, but rather protects and guards his sheep. As he had promised his disciples, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus doesn't say like, hey, you know, let's take those guys instead. No, he says, I'm going to go leave these guys alone. As he promised there in John chapter 13, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The sort of picture that John has painted for us here is a sacrifice that is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Finally, here in verses 10 and 11, Peter rises to be a prominent character here in chapter 18, does he not? Peter springs into action, as Peter so often did. Cutting off the ear of one of the servants. He's he's going to fight to protect Jesus. The sad truth that Peter had to learn is that Jesus didn't need Peter's protection but rather that Peter needed Jesus. And in response to Peter cutting off this ear, John records these words in chapter, 11, chapter 18, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, <laughs> Peter, let me straighten you up here a little bit. Put your sword into its sheath. Put it away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus here uses Old Testament language to help teach Peter what's really happening. See, Peter was trying to control the situation, but Jesus was in complete control. He was in the driver's seat. No one else was. And back in Isaiah chapter 51, the prophet Isaiah would use this kind of language about a cup. He says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup." Of his wrath. Who have drunk to the dreads the bowl. The cup of staggering. Then he would go on later in that chapter. Thus says the Lord. The Lord your God. Who pleads the cause of his people. Behold I have taken from your hand. The cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. In other words, the prophet Isaiah uses a picture of a cup filled with wine as a depiction being poured out of God's wrath upon his people. But but God says, you don't have to drink my judgment anymore. They had been been cast out because of their sin to Babylon. And and God was was telling them there was going to be a season in which he would deal with their sin in a different way. He himself would take the cup. And Jesus here alluding to this passage in Isaiah 51 says that he is the one who is taking the cup of his father's wrath and will drink down to the dregs. It means he'll drink it all such that there will be no drop of God's wrath remaining. John would write similarly in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is, here's that word, propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, Jesus is the one Who willingly came to sacrifice himself to do something. And that is to satisfy God's wrath. Now why does God have wrath? Why is God angry? Why does God have judgment? Because our sinful rebellion requires a just God to deal with it. You see, if God didn't deal with sin, if he didn't judge sin, then God wouldn't be just. God wouldn't be just. No different than if a judge here in our courts knew that a criminal had committed a crime and just said, Ah, it's okay. We all make mistakes. We all kill people now and again. It's all right. Not at all. What would we say? We would say that judge is unjust. There was no penalty for to help the victim in that crime, to, to speak out against the blood of the, the victim in that, that particular case. We would say that judge needs to be disbarred and removed. No different than God. But because God is holy and just, he must deal with our sin. The reformers used to say it's similarly. That one sin against an infinite God demands an infinite punishment. One sin. You pick the sin. Whatever sin you you like, you pick it. One act of rebellion warrants infinite punishment. Therefore, it required an infinite God to satisfy an infinite wrath. No one could satisfy, no man could satisfy God's wrath. You couldn't do enough good to outdo the bad that you've done. And looking at it that way is completely wrong to begin with. It's not as if God has—he's keeping score in heaven. You know, kind of piling up all the good and all the bad. And at the end of the day, sort of weighing it out and saying, well, they did more good than bad. No, friend. One act of rebellion merits eternal judgment. One single act. But God in his grace sends his son. And the son willingly comes and says, I must drink the father's cup. Peter, get behind me. I'm going to do that in the cross. Paul says it this way. For in Jesus as the... As the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Listen, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace with man? No. Peace with God. God's wrath was appeased. It was satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ, through his blood as the author of. Hebrews says there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. Jesus Christ died. His, His blood was a sacrifice. All those Old Testament sacrifices. All those bloody bulls and goats and lambs. All of that pointed toward the one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Friends, what does this mean for us? This means that it's only by faith. Faith that that we believe that that what Jesus did on the cross satisfied the Father's wrath. And the one truth that Satan will tempt you to doubt is that truth. The sufficiency of Jesus' death. See, so will get in your mind and you'll get you to think that your sin is really great. And boy, it is great. If people really knew what you thought, if people really knew the thoughts and the, the evil things you want to do, if people really knew the things you did in your past, they would never believe you're a Christian. They they would never be convinced that God loves you. That God would forgive. You don't understand. Your sin is so vile and so heinous. God would never forgive that. These are the lies that he whispers. But the truth is that Jesus' death fully satisfied the Father's wrath. Such that there is no wrath remaining. Friend, if you're a Christian this morning, do you ever have these thoughts? Oh, God must not hear my prayers because my sin. Oh, God must not hear my prayers because I don't read my Bible. God must not hear my prayers because I don't give enough. Or because I didn't do something, or I did something. Friends, if you think that, and if you're a Christian and you think that, you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God's love for you has nothing to do with you and everything to do with what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Therefore, we should worship the Lord openly and, and hopefully that, that Jesus would come willingly to die for you, you rotten scoundrel. For our rebellion, he blessed. And this leads us to our second point we see. Verses 12 through 27. Jesus is dying as a substitute. His death is substitutionary. Jesus died in the place of sinners, not saints. Jesus Christ came into this world to die for sinners. Sinners, as we'll see, just like Peter. I mean, you think your sin's bad. Have you ever publicly denied Jesus three times while Jesus is being slapped around in the next room over? Have you ever been like warming yourself by the fire in all the comforts of this world? While your savior is is getting a crown of thorns shoved on his head and while he's being beaten. All the while you're just being comforted by the warmth of a fire in the middle of the night. Well, Peter did. Peter knew what it meant that Jesus came to die for sinners. That he didn't come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Jesus didn't die for those who have lives perfectly put together, but for those who have a messed up life. He came to die for those who couldn't even stand up for the, for the truth when it was in the next room over from them. As we consider these things, Passages. I want to begin in verse 13, or verse 12 rather. So the band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Listen, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another di- disciple. Since the disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked him, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. From a sheer literary fact, John is a master of one main literary device. He uses it throughout the gospel and that is irony. Irony. He fills chapter 18 with irony, doesn't he, huh? Isn't it ironic that that this man slaps Jesus and says to him, right? Who are you to slap or who are you to speak to the high priest this way? Jesus himself being the great high priest. Or perhaps as you see Peter warming himself by the fire while his savior is suffering. Throughout this passage, we see little crumbs that John wants us to understand. And it came there in verse 14. John, again, is interpreting to us what we're to remember, what he said so far. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Remember, he had employed that ironic statement back in chapter 11. Chapter in chapter 11, verses 49 through 50, John records this. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, we were to understand that this ironic statement used and employed by the Apostle John to help us understand the truth that Caiaphas was saying, that Jesus came to die for people. For sinners. He came to die in the place. As he would tell his disciples. In the previous chapter. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep. For the sheep. On behalf of the sheep. Or, or as Paul will say it. In that all too familiar passage. In Second Corinthians 5.21. For our sake. He made him, Jesus, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sake, on our behalf. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system was predicated upon the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ. The fact that a lamb was sacrificed in place of the firstborn. here are the firstborn dying. In the place of the people. The very fact that this is taking place. On the eve of the Passover. Is to help us to understand. The point that John has. That Jesus Christ is suffering. All of this humiliation. All of this ridicule. All of this physical abuse. Ultimately his death. On behalf of people. On behalf of you. On behalf of me. This truth that we see throughout is to give us hope. I mean, look at how John crafts this section. It begins with Jesus being bound, arrested, led away to a place of death. The gospel of John is going to end with exactly that same future per Peter himself. As Jesus will prophesy, Peter, when you grow old, you're going to be bound and taken where you do not want to More than that, we see this sort of shifting camera between Peter and Jesus. Peter faithfully following Jesus, sort of cowering behind, more concerned about keeping himself warm. You know, this week, as I was reading this, I thought, well, man, John really throws Peter under the bus. Twice he says, look, twice. He does it like not once, but twice. Look what he says, verse 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them, standing and warming himself. And then again in verse 26, now Peter or 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. It's like, dang, John, we got it. He he cared more about his physical comfort than living a sacrificial life for Jesus. But there's hope in this. Because for Peter, the end of the story isn't John chapter 18. For Peter, the end of the story is John chapter 21, where Jesus graciously restores Peter. it's a reminder to us that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners, not for saints. This truth, truth should give us hope. It should encourage us to know that Jesus is going through all of this for you and for me. Friend, this morning, do you doubt the love of God? Do you doubt that God loves you, that God cares for you, that God will will get you to, to heaven? Friends, look no further than what we see and witness. You, you don't need a PhD to understand what is happening in this passage. But friends, you need faith to believe that it, it was for you. It was for your sin. Jesus promises that those who come to him will never be cast out. That no sin is too great for Jesus to die for. For those who would turn and trust. For entrust trust in him today. Trust that that his death was a substitutionary death. It was the death your sin deserved. Finally, verses 28 through 40, we see that Jesus' death is kingly. Jesus Christ died as the heavenly king. Let's look here at verse 28. Then Jesus was led from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, how dare they, so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to the truth. Pilate said to him, what's truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have chosen, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Friends, you see the scene goes from inside to outside to, to back outside. Outside to inside to back outside. The camera is sort of shifting. Again, I alluded to this irony, and, and you see again the irony. Do you not see it? Look here again at verses 28. The Jews are so concerned with the law. I mean, get, get, wrap this around your mind for just a moment. These Jewish leaders are so stressed out about their ability to eat the Passover, that they won't go inside of Pilate's headquarters because if they do, they'll be defiled and therefore unable to participate in the Passover. The Passover being that pinnacle festival in the life of Israel. Thousands would flock to Jerusalem every year to eat the Passover lamb in celebration of God's great rescue From slavery in Egypt. They're so worried about this. That they are sentencing an innocent man to death. But they're worried about getting their feet dirty. More than that. The very one. Who was the Passover lamb. The one. Whom at the beginning of John's gospel. The. John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was standing in their midst. They're going to execute the Lamb of God, the very one who's going to do away with all of this system that they're so consumed with. You see, they were so driven by jealousy that they had to trump up charges against Jesus in order to get him executed. See, the Jews knew that uh, the accusation of blasphemy was insufficient to satisfy Pilate's taste. They knew that Pilate wouldn't care about a squabbling over whether or not Jesus thought he might be a god. Clearly, in a polytheistic world that most Romans lived in, they would have not been so worried about multiple gods. But they would have been concerned about an insurrectionist. They would have been concerned about a man who was trying to set himself up as king. And so the Jews sort of created this sort of half truth about Jesus, that he was some sort of rebel trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. They knew that that charge would get Pilate excited. And sure enough, it does, doesn't it? Pilate begins to, inqu- it begins to ask about Jesus. Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you setting yourself up in opposition to Rome? And Jesus makes clear that he is not a king as this world would define. You know, so often words mean certain things to certain people. Buzzwords, we might say they are. And Jesus here is very wise. He, he doesn't use the buzzwords that he knows will satisfy Pilate, but says my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, he wants to make clear to Pilate that he is not the kind of king that Pilate thinks he is. He's a different kind of king. Jesus isn't the kind of king that sets up a throne here on earth and and rules with an iron fist. He's a very different kind of king. Defying all understanding. Jesus says, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom, he reiterates, is not from The world, notice, from the world. In other words, Jesus' kingdom doesn't derive any source from any materials of this world. It is anti this world. It is contra this world. It is different than this world. It is unlike anything this world even has ever known. You know, ironically, how often we project what we believe the kingdom of God to be by thinking about it in terms of this world. Jesus makes clear, and this is why Jesus says, my disciples aren't fighting. This is why Jesus gets after Peter so hard. Peter, you're you're thinking about this all wrong. You see, I'm not some crusader who, who, who's seeking to capture people through military might, but through the power of the Spirit. This is why Christianity is always unstoppable. We talked earlier this morning in our Sunday school class about, um, about... How the kingdom of God advances. Despite what the government does. No government in this world can, can, can put a wall up so big as it stops Christianity. Just ask, just ask those in eastern Germany. The giant wall that separated west and east Germany. Was not big enough to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. As those east Germans came to know Christ. Through faithful evangelism and faithful preaching of the gospel. And neither can it stop it here. Jesus declares that he is the king of kings. He alludes here to Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel prophesying into him, this future king that Jesus is, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What kingdom on earth could ever be described in that way? One that never comes to an end? Friends, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Even here in America. We're only a couple hundred years old, folks. You go to Europe, there's kingdoms in Europe that are a thousand years old. We're we're just little babies on on the scene here in history. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Kings come and go. Presidents come and go. They come and go. But Jesus' kingdom shall not pass away. It shall not be destroyed. More than that, we are told that his kingdom and dominion and greatness shall cover the whole earth such that it shall be made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. What kingdom is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation? There's no kingdom on this earth. But the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is making clear that he came into the world for this very purpose. In other words, Jesus is about an eternal plan that is unfolding before Pilate's eyes. That he may deny it, he may seek to cover it up, but at the end of the day, Jesus Christ came for this purpose. Nothing will stop it. And as chapter 18 concludes, we see yet again a picture of what it means to follow Jesus, don't we know? what he says there in verse 37. You say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. There it is. Jesus came for a singular mission to tell us the truth. To tell us the truth about our sin. To tell us the truth about who God is. To tell us the truth about the gospel that he came to die. And notice here everyone who is of the truth does what? Listens to the truth. There is the great divine. There is the great distinguisher. How does one know if he is in the kingdom of Jesus? Because he obeys the king. Jesus would use a different illustration. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You see, a lot of people in this world say they're following Jesus. They'll tell you that they're a Christian. They go to church. That they believe in Jesus. That Jesus died on the cross and that he was, he was raised from the grave. And that he ascended into heaven. And they even pray to him. But they're not following him because they don't obey him. Jesus tells Pilate, here's the deal, Pilate. If you want to know who my sheep are, if you want to know who my kingdom people are, here they are. They listen to my voice. You'll know them because they obey me. And friends, this morning, what we want to understand is that if we are to live by faith. In the atoning work of Christ, in the substitutionary work of Christ, if we want Jesus to be our king, that means we've got to obey him as king. Not just pay him lip service. Jesus, I love you or Jesus, I believe in you. Those are all superficial words. To believe in Jesus is to obey Jesus. Simple as that. It is an oxymoronic statement to say, I'm following Jesus while living in unrepentant sin. To say, I want Jesus as my Lord, but yet you yourself still living your own way. Jesus makes an emphatically clear statement about the truth. The truth is this my disciples hear my words and obey brothers and sisters. This world is going to try to convolute that muddy that up more than any other truth. You're going to hear. They're going to tell you that you can follow Jesus and still live in sin. They're going to redefine what sin is. They're going to normalize sin. This world's in is on a fast train of normalizing some of the most grotesque immorality this world has seen in a long time. All in the name of love. Some might ask in this world, what does love look like? You might say love looks like acceptance. Accepting our neighbor the way they want to live. Love is turning the other cheek. Love is looking past people's faults. Love is, is embracing everyone for who they want to be. And that's the way the world defines love. But for historic Christians, for those who believe in the truth of God's Word, who stand upon God's Word, as our final authority, believe that love looks like a bloody cross. Because Jesus is being nailed to that cross because of our sinful, willful rebellion against God's good order. We believe that God dealt with our sin. That He didn't sweep our sin away. He didn't look past our sin. He didn't just... Close a blind eye to our sin. But he definitively punished our sin forever. In the death of Jesus Christ. Such that there is no wrath left for you. Nothing. Not from the sins you committed in the past. Not the ones you'll commit today. Nor the ones you'll commit tomorrow. Jesus Christ has completely paid that penalty in full. There is no wrath remaining. God is never going to be wrathful with you ever again if you've placed your faith in Jesus. Friend, will you submit to Him today? Will you see that Christ Jesus came in the world to die for you? May you see the destined day arise. As we sing, see a willing sacrifice. Jesus to redeem our loss hangs upon the shameful cross. Father, we do pray this morning that we might know you better, that we might know our Savior better, that we might know the vileness of our sin, but that we are now white as snow through the blood of the Lamb. May we stand in awe of a Savior who would come and die for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.